Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead. Me, Richard Lee. And me, Sean Kane. In this episode, we hear from a novelist who has unfinished business with maths and from a sculptor who has turned to novels. Both maths and fiction can be seen as ways of expressing alternative realities. Brian Catling tells Sean about the dark recesses of his imagination, which have made him a cult fantasy novelist, while Richard quizzes Karen Olson on whether maths and fiction are complementary or complete opposites. But first, the memoir of the former British Prime Minister David Cameron finally emerges this week. But were all those hours spent writing in the cosy confines of his hand-built shepherd's hut worthwhile? Joining us to discuss Cameron's for the record and to look at other memorable political memoirs is The Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff. Gabby, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. You must have a big grapevine going. What, what, what is the rumour about this book? I think people have been expecting it to be um, a bit of a self-justifying exercise. You know, there's this, I think, erroneous view of Cameron as sort of swanning off into the sunset whistling while, you know, the rest of the world catches far behind him thinking, well, that went fine. You know, and I don't think that's actually true. So while I haven't read it yet, I think he might be a little more self-critical or self-searching in this book than people are necessarily expecting. I think he'll try and present himself as the Prime Minister he wanted to be, rather than necessarily the Prime Minister he actually was, which is as a great social reformer. But I don't think he can get away from the fact that this career ended in epic failure, really. (laughs) The kind of failure you can't really draw a curtain over. He lost a referendum, lost his job, and then the Conservative Party seems to have lost its mind. I mean, you can't really relegate that to a dark corner. The publisher spent something like £800,000 on this. Is this this going to be money down the drain from them? He is so much yesterday's man. I could think of other things I might do with with £800,000, if I'm honest. I don't know how many people are going to look at a book, you know, a dust jacket with David Cameron's face beaming out of them and think, please, please let me um, buy this book. And how many people are going to go, oh, God, not him again. <laughs> and I think for the, for a while now, you felt that perhaps political memoirs are, are more vanity projects than necessarily selling like hotcakes. Some of the most interesting books I can think of come, come from people who didn't actually quite make it to the top and the official ones are a bit of a damp script. Yeah, we'll come to those later. But I just want to bring us back to Tony Blair's. Now, we, what mm. we really want from these things is indiscretion. And yes. Tony Blair was very indiscreet and got a big ticking off for revealing the barbecue habits of the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, <laughs> among other things. Do you think Cameron will be indiscreet or, or not? I think uh, David Cameron is far too posh to be indiscreet about the Queen. Um, but I think... <laughs> 
Tony Blair got in trouble, apart from anything else, for um, referring to his and Cherie's sex life, which I think was, was more than most readers really Oh, that was so gross, wasn't it? The fact I, that I Leo really, was conceived mm. at Balmoral, I, I, I and, and there, were, there were a couple of references, and you just thought, OK, this, is, this is, goes into the realm of too much information. I don't expect that from David Cameron either, but I think what people will be looking for particularly is uh, what he says about people like Michael Gove, you know, close friends who went over to the Leave side... And Boris Johnson, too, for very obvious reasons. I don't think um, Cameron was so surprised or personally upset by by Boris going over to the Leave side during the referendum. But obviously, now that he's prime minister, any you know snippet whatsoever is going to be interesting. Now, just going on to the um, the memoirs written by other people who'd never quite reached the absolute heights. Um, I am very ashamed to say that I, I discovered on my the top shelves of my bookshelves Alan Clark's diaries, which I'd I'd obviously somehow sort of not thrown away when I cleared my parents' house out. But it's actually, with the benefit of hindsight, it's totally fascinating. And one of the things it's absolutely clear about is the tradition within Tory mythology of the incorrigible rogue, mm. which which is actually, you know, which is what Alan Clark was. And now we have a prime minister who is a self-styled incorrigible rogue. Yes, it was a lot easier to get away with it in Alan Clark's day. I think it's fine. I mean, you read the diaries now and they do feel like they're written from another era you know were he doing all of this today he'd be the subject to some kind of sort of me too uprising where his private life is absolutely held up as shocking and exploitative in in many ways you have this picture of someone sort of having really quite an agreeable life combining ministerial activities which don't sound overly taxing to be honest um, with a private life which sounds extremely taxing and they are fantastic Um, they're a really good example of a memoir the politics is almost second to the individual you know it's it's Clark you're fascinated by not necessarily what's going on around him whereas something like you know the complete opposite of that is Chris Mullins memoirs in a way where he's quite a sort of self-effacing character in them and it's all about what he's heard in the tea room <laughs> but um there is also a portrait of a, of a tired government in the in the volume that i've got and he says uh, on the first of may 1990 just before thatcher was um deposed and and this i think we need to remember this in an age in which we're in danger of idolizing thatcher or some people are what could we do to sucker the lady we were stuck with the same inflation rate as when we came to power in 1979 10 11 years of endeavor or however we call those deprivations to life and family and nothing to show for it but the passage of time and the intrusion of age mm. and he was quite fond of thatcher well, well allegedly very appreciative of her ankles anyway put it that way <laughs> so so what what of the good ones i mean you know often it's the rebels isn't it tony ben there's a huge affection for tony ben and that his diaries sold fantastically well in several volumes. Yes, the, the Ben diaries are sort of absolute classics of their kind. And even even the later ones where he's not in government anymore and he's not really um, active in politics particularly, you know, are just fast because he's so interested in other people. He just has this undimmed curiosity about everything that's going on around him. So you get that real sort of sense, vital sense for them of, of a world whirling around your head. I think there's a big difference between diaries which by their nature are very immediate and obviously you know the other big one is Alistair Campbell's which is well whatever you think of Campbell personally is fascinating still getting bigger I was absolutely astonished to find that it's going it, there's an eighth volume due out from bike back isn't there it will go on longer than Brexit Alistair Campbell's <laughs> diaries so that you get that immediacy and that sense of being right in the room where things are happening with diaries but I think in a way autobiographies or memoirs do something different because they allow you to sit back and look back over the space of a whole career. Diaries, you can't necessarily make a huge amount of sense of what's going on 
around you at the moment because you don't know what's coming next you know whereas I think the value of a memoir is that people can set events in context and go back to their decisions and and have to justify them I think the process of talking to a couple of politicians who've done it the process of having to go back over your notes and think that and actually question your memory in some cases no things didn't happen the way you think they did and see things that you didn't see at the time is quite valuable and that's what I think will be useful about Cameron's if he's actually honest and if he's actually self-critical in some ways I think we really need to understand how the decision to have this referendum which has changed everyone's lives came about and how it went you know from his point of view and from Remainer's point of view wrong I think he's the person best placed in some ways to know. Gabby Hinsliff. Now let's move from political memoirs of Westminster to fantasy worlds of sentient forests, bestial beings and biblical myth. This is the imaginary domain of Brian Catling, who until his early 60s was best known in small circles as an artist, sculptor and poet. Then he began writing a fantasy novel called The Vore. Initially planning it as a short novella, it became a huge fantasy trilogy set around an African forest that holds the Garden of Eden at its centre, and was likened by one critic to Gormenghast, reimagined by Alan Moore on Opium. That imagination is back in a much smaller work, Earwig, a novella about a man who takes on the job of looking after a strange little girl in a big house in Belgium. When he came to the studio, he sat down with Sean, who's a big fan. Brian Catling, welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. Thank you. Now, I interviewed you for a written article a couple of years ago for The Vore, which was your sort of huge sprawling fantasy trilogy yeah. um and uh, i interviewed you when it ended and uh when we spoke i i think i gave you quite a lot of joy when i told you that one of the first scenes in the war gave me nightmares and you seemed really <laughs> really pleased with that news so i thought i'd tell you that i had at least one nightmare from earwig uh your new book um, that's very good <laughs> i won't say what it was if people are going to read it but i'll just say cat lovers won't like it very much (laughs) I was really struck when I interviewed you and I told you that that you were pleased by the idea that you could give someone a nightmare yeah because (laughs) that's getting straight through to the subconscious that's uh, totally direct and it's a rebound it's a space that you're interested in then yeah very much so I mean I think that's the it's the closest to one of the seats of imagination for me rather than the kind of organised one Mm. I'm not a very organized person I, I i let things kind of float then i chase them you're interested in i guess striking the subconscious yes it's, it's that thing about not quite knowing where it is so so it's not engineered it's not a design process it's what it's a way of feeling it mm. way of feeling it's going to go there it's going to go there first and maybe maybe it goes there first before it goes into the conscious mind mm-hmm. so the war opened with a man making a sentient bow from the spy of his dead lover. And in Earwig, we are introduced to a little girl whose teeth are replaced with dentures made from her frozen saliva. Yes. And when I interviewed you a couple of years ago, you were telling me about Mia, who is this little girl, and yes. you were saying that she came to you in real life. It's the f- Well, in real life, it's this has never happened before and it's never happened since, and I don't really know what to say. I was asleep or I was awake one morning and she walked into the room pointed at her mouth and said, my name is Mia, and then walked out. And, I mean, it wasn't an hallucination, and I don't take drugs. <laughs> Everyone thinks I don't. I've never... <laughs> I don't need to. <laughs> and it was just... I guess it was a waking dream. It was something like that. 
But I stuck with her, and mm. I was stuck with the kind of challenge of that was it, tell my story. Mm. And so you, I did. Were you frightened of her at all? Not at all. No. Uh, that's what made it so peculiar. It was just, oh, you know, hello. <laughs> she was there. Guess I have to deal with you now. Yeah. <laughs> and so then where did you go from there? Because... I mean, the book's called Earwig, and so mm. Mia is a very big part of it, but also we've got this other character called Earwig. Yeah. So you've obviously had to expand that story beyond Mia. How did you go about that if, if you were starting from that point? I just started to write. Mm. This is always what happens. There's no plan. I just started to write. She is there. How does she change her teeth? How does she change the ice in her teeth? Someone does it for her. Oh. And then I just started. Yeah. And because it's in set in Liège, in Belgium, which is a place I know, it was the atmosphere of that and the atmosphere of that time that kind of seeped in. And I just saw it. This is what, always what happens. I kind of see it that I start to describe it or evoke it. And so Iwig is offered this, well, he applies for this role as a mm. sort of caretaker mm. for Mia. And he's asked early on, are you scared of children? And I was thinking well, back to the Vore, and we've got this the, the scary baby in the Vore, but also a particularly prominent child character in that first book. Um, and then also in this, then we have Mia with her quite frightening dental setup. <laughs> and I was wondering, are you scared of children? Um, Earwig is dedicated to my three children. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think I, I think I was all scared of them before I had them. Mm. The idea of it's so odd. But then when they arrived, it was just, that's really normal. But I guess something about how they become like us is kind of interesting before they become like us. And everyone's waiting for it and celebrating it. And I'm kind of interested in when they're, when it's not there yeah. or it's taken a long time to come through or it comes through in a different way. And so do you sort of view them as almost like a separate species to adults? Yes. Yeah, yeah I do. I've never that? been asked that question before. <laughs> <laughs> a separate species, but but as interesting as animals. Right. I mean, I'm interested in all species mm. and their peculiarities and what makes them different from apparently normal, quote, uh, grown-up human beings. Mm. So they, they go into the catalogue of other creatures that behave strangely. Mm. And as we were sitting down before, I showed you, um, I've got a copy of Only the Lowly, um, yes. which is a book you wrote before the war. And uh, when I held it up, you went, oh, that's weird, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like it was unexpected to you as well, how weird yeah, this book is. Uh, most of it was, was put together before the war, but some of it came came afterwards. And it was it's one of those things that I could only write those 10 stories. I tried to write more, and it's not possible. So that That is odd. Yes. It, it's odder than the war because it's... It's closer to reality and the worst aspects of human beings. Mm. And it's a comedy. Yeah, well, there, there's also that, that interesting element of these animal-human hybrids that yes. populate this yes. world that you've created. That is the lowly, yeah. yes. Which, of course, we are experimenting to make at this moment everywhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. They will be the next slaves. Do you think so? Yeah, I think, I think they're being worked on. They'll be trusted more than robots, more than electronically-based creatures. You have this interest, and this is also in the vore of these not-quite-human-humans that populate your worlds, and they're yes. often used as slave labour in your books. Yes. Well, slavery has always been there, and it still is. This is just a different kind of version of it. And because it's set back, it's set away from 
the normal form of corruption in slavery. It gives us a chance to see it. It gives us a chance to see how we would use something like us to our own advantage, which we've done to every tribe on the face of the earth. The dominant tribe has done to the uh, less dominant tribe. So I think it's a, it's a deep human condition. Mm. I don't think it's gone away. Is it this, an interest in sort of the worst possibilities of, of us? It's the worst possibilities and, well, what's even worse than the worst possibilities is that when things become normal mm-hmm. and it becomes just, just the everyday and people don't even see it or, or consider it. It's just the way things are. And because you had this whole career as an artist and as a poet yeah. and as a performer, and then you wrote the Vaughan when you were sixty-one, 61, right? Sixty-one, yeah. And so then suddenly you had this whole new thing that you're known for. But then you also had this whole new array of tools at your hands, yes. being able to write novels and and longer form written works. You do get the sense in in Ewig that you're still having quite a lot of fun. I am, and it's not stopped. It's, okay. it's still. I'm working on three at once. You're working on three books at once. Yeah. But you've described your imagination as a muscle to me, something that you know is there that people do have to work on and keep it going. It increases with exercise. It increases with exercise. So how do you exercise your imagination? It's so constant, I don't recognise I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just every minute of the day I'm, I'm kind of making versions of things I'm seeing as reality. I mean, what in the room we're in now, I could rearrange this, could make a sculpture from this, mm-hmm. just by taking it all apart and putting it together. And some part of me is doing that as I do it. So it's always been there. It's always been this thing that won't leave things alone, just wants to turn them into something else. Mm-hmm. But finding a language and then using the language, not in an indulgent way, but using it in a kind of precise way and using it as a lure so people end up doing it themselves rather than me doing it for them. Mm-hmm. And you were adopted, and you were, yes. we were talking about this a while back, and how you've never had any interest in finding your biological parents, but you've had an interest in the possibility that your weirdness and your imagination possibly came from them, while also being encouraged by your adoptive parents. Yeah, well. my, well, my adoptive parents were such wonderful and normal people. They didn't know what I was. They didn't know the, what this cuckoo was they'd taken in. <laughs> into their home. Um, I'd love to think about what kind of weird kid you were. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I was kind of normal on the surface and then it sort of just, it turned inside out. You yeah. Know? It's just difficult to know where these things come from. Origins are such peculiar things. Most people know them mm. and can step back or ask a question, but if you can't. So I think I kind of fell in love with the mystery of the thing. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't have anything other than curiosity to go and seek it out. And I didn't want to turn up on someone's doorstep and just say, hello, guess who I am? You know, because it's a nightmare. You yeah. know, they, they don't need that. So, And I might, I might have had brothers and sisters. Imagine how horrible that would be. <laughs> Imagine if they're as weird as you, though. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. <laughs> Imagine all the things you could produce them. together. A yeah. No, no, no. Tribe of catlings. That's even worse now. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not having that. <laughs> My kids are pretty weird. Are they? Yeah, yeah. Are you encouraging them to write? No, no, I'm, no, no. They do it anyway. Oh, they are. Oh, no, yeah, they're, they're taking over. Oh, fantastic! The funny thing is with the war, and you saying that you wrote, you wrote the war, and you sort of thought it would be this sort of esoteric, interesting book that a hundred people would own a copy and they'd pull it off off the shelf and think it was a good thing, yeah. and then it became something that was widely reviewed and 
loved by the likes of Philip Pullman and Michael Moorcock and Alan Moore, and it really established you as a, as a writer very, very quickly. Mm, did. Now that whole project is sort of over, those three books are over and you've had a bit of time away from it. How do you feel about that project? Um, I feel very f- fondly towards them. It's still, still something of shock. Yeah. I mean, when people congratulate me on them, I don't really know what to say because I don't... I, I feel like I, I didn't really do it. Yeah. Because it's not like making... When I finish a sculpture, I know I've done it because I'm surrounded by chaos and, and I'm genuinely aching and, and fed up with it. But, but this is not like that. This had a drive inside it. And it just pulled me through it, and I just—I felt this kind of—I I was processed, not channeled. I was processed for these things, these things to come out. Mm. And if it goes into this next condition, which is nothing to do with me, which is going into the kind of the royal condition of cinema or television, it's going to be even odder because I've left it behind. I mean, I've moved on to earwig and to other things and the new books. And. You just mentioned cinema and, yeah, and, and did, television. <laughs> there's, there's always been talk about you and Terry Gilliam trying to get it. And Ray, Cooper. And Ray th- Cooper. The three of us made a company to own the Vore and to... Yeah, that's that's recently, very recently, got very, very exciting indeed. That's great. So I, I can't speak about it, but I think something quite remarkable is going to happen quite soon. Brian Catling and Earwig is published by Coronet. We'll be back after a short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. In The Vague Conjectures, the novelist Karen Olson steps away from fiction to explore the lives of the siblings Simone and André Vague. André was known for his work in number theory and algebraic geometry, and especially for his conjectures, which inspired mathematicians for decades. Simone was a philosopher and activist who died when she was only 34. So what's the particular appeal of this double biography, Richard? Well, it's partly because it's not conventional double biography. It's written in a very kind of fragmentary way, and there's also some material about Olson's own life, her own experiences. And partly because of her relationship to the subject. She's a novelist. She published uh, Waterloo in 2005 and All the Houses in 2015. But she's a novelist who also studied maths at college. And I'm fascinated by what she has to say about maths and creativity and how the two work together or differently or the same. And also because the Vays are just such an extraordinary pair. So when I spoke to her down the line from Texas, I asked her how she first came across them. Well, Simone Vey was somebody that I was interested in in high school. And um, I think she's a little less famous now. But at that point, she was, you know, her you could find her in the bookstore. She was 
she was there and for a young girl to see this um, very strong female intellectual, I was intrigued by her. Um, and I didn't actually know that her brother was a eminent mathematician until many years later. Um, and then when I found that out, I was fascinated by the idea that uh, of these siblings and that they were both so brilliant. Um, and I wanted to know more about their family and kind of their relationship with each other. Because uh, they really are the most extraordinary pair. They are. I mean, I don't know of another one like it. And with I think siblings, I mean, just watching my own children, you know, they, they form each other. They, they are part of each other's minds in a way that, you know, more than a friend. And sometimes I think, you know, sometimes I think with my kids that they probably have more influence on each other than, than we, their parents, have on them. So I, I'm fascinated by sibling relationships and especially such an extraordinary pair of siblings. I mean, I guess if there's listeners who aren't yet familiar with them, can you kind of give us a thumbnail sketch of both of them and their, their impact in their various spheres? Yeah, sure. Um, so Simone Vey is... She's somebody who, whenever you see her described, it's with a bunch of slashes or dashes. She was she was more than one thing. So you so you see kind of philosopher, mystic, political activist. She did all these things. She started out as a young woman, as a philosophy teacher, writing political essays for newspapers. And as she grew a little older, she became more and more drawn to religion and and more mystical in her writing and then she died in a very strange way when she was only 34 during world war ii i think it used to be understood that she had starved herself but it's stranger than that really it seems like a combination of not wanting to eat very much and kind of gradually having less capacity to eat combined with an actual illness Um, and so she just went into the hospital and never came out in uh, that was 1942. What about Andre? And so Andre, he was the older brother. He was born in 1906, and he, um, you know, where where she was somebody who who sought her place and and struggled a little to kind of find her place in the world. He was somebody who, by the age of nine, had been hooked by mathematics and never looked back. He was interested in other things, particularly Sanskrit, and he lived in India for a little while, but. He was a great mathematician, and he lived a long life and contributed to many fields of math, in particular kind of laid some of the foundations for algebraic geometry. So how did this book in particular begin? Was it this dawning realisation of your own unfinished business with maths? That came kind of as I was writing it. So I'm also a novelist. I've written two novels, and I was writing a novel that had a lot of mathematician characters, and I kind of kept stuffing more in there and Andre was one of the characters in the novel uh, there were there were made up mathematicians there were real mathematicians and it, it became an unworkable mess <laughs> um, and so I, I took a step back and thought well I know who who least fits into this novel is Andre Vey I'm just interested in writing about him that's why I've tried to put him in this novel but he doesn't belong at all but rather than throw him away I just decided to pursue for a little while kind of trying to understand my fascination with him. Uh, And so that's really where this started and kind of why it um, has this collage-like form is it really began with kind of just investigating my 
interest in him, which I knew had to do with the fact that I had studied math in college and also with the fact that I had been so interested in his sister starting in high school. Mm. It's tempting, as you say, to see Simone and Andre as kind of almost two sides of the same coin, uh, two very different sides of the same uh, of the same coin. However, but, mm-hmm. but do you think that, as you were saying earlier, do you think much of their lives was formed by this sibling relationship? Yes and no. I think, in a way, that when you're the older sibling, you're influenced by your younger sibling in a different way than when you're the younger sibling influenced by your older sibling. So I think of Andre as maybe kind of haunted by Simone and especially by her early death. And Simone as very much kind of growing up in the shadow of this kind of genius brother. I I think of him as more of a foil for her and her as more of a maybe a, a shadow over him. And with her, even though, you know, when you read about her writing, math is not the first thing that comes up. But as you go deeper into it, you realize she was really thinking a lot about math and mathematicians, um, and that that really influenced the way that she thought about the world and about beauty and about a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, you say that maths was kind of an undercurrent in her work, but I mean, it's it's tempting to see maths and writing almost as opposites as well. I mean, how do you see the, the relationship between the two in your own life? Well, on the one hand, you know, I, I studied math as an undergraduate and then dropped it and, and never looked back. So, and I, I saw them as, you know, just two separate things that I had done. Kind, kind of phases almost. Exactly. So, so that's, I, I saw them one way, but at the same time, you know, we, we kind of understand them generally to be very different. But even when I was studying math in college, I felt like there was this kind of overlap with fiction writing and, and kind of maybe the stereotype is of the kind of math person who's also really into science fiction, for instance, or writing a science fiction book. And I I think that there is this kind of fascination with living in in kind of an alternate abstract reality that can be expressed as an interest in mathematics or an interest in other worlds in other ways. So for me, I think that's part of the common thread is just kind of where does this impulse toward abstraction come from and what do we do with it? You also cite Maria Chudnovsky, who was the, uh, with three other colleagues, um, found a proof, a 150-page proof of the strong perfect graph theorem, which I I must say I don't know what that is. But anyway, she says that first you try in the dark and then you start to get an idea of how things should go. And then sometimes, in fact, you're wrong, but then there comes a time when you imagine some sequence of steps in your mind and you're able to take all the steps, which sounds very much, you say, like the kind of the fundamental narrative of any kind of creative process in any field. Yeah, I think sometimes people, because they stop studying math, you know, after high school, they maybe they don't think of it as a, a creative endeavor, but it really is. And so, yes, I mean, that it's a it's a wonderful interview and you can see it on YouTube. And she, yes, she talks about math in the same way writers talk about writing. And I'm sure that other people solving problems in other fields and applying creative thinking would identify with that quote. It's universal. You say that you used to think of writing as crystallising thoughts into a more precise and elegant form, but now that it seems more like word critters scuttling around an inexpressible landscape, a marvellous collection of critters right there. But I'm wondering what you make of authors like Flannery O'Connor, for whom writing is a process of discovery, where it famously says, I write because I don't know what I think until I read what I say. Yes, no, I, I, I believe that. And, and I, I think of writing that way too as, as a kind of discovery. But at the same time, I think the older I get, the, the less I understand. So <laughs> I can discover a little bit, but then the, the 
terrain of Undiscovered becomes larger and bleaker. You also cite Don DeLillo, who describes find a mathematical discovery as, as feeling like an idea unerase itself. Do you think a similar kind of discovery is possible in, in literature? Yes, although if you're writing fiction... Well, I never feel sure that I have the right answer. In terms of mathematical discovery, I think there's a different quality of discovery in which something just falls into place like it is right by the rules that you have set up. And I think even when something feels discovered and true in the fictional context, there are always so many more degrees of freedom. There's always the specter of a different way that you could put it or a different possible line of dialogue. So yes and no. (laughs) <laughs> is it any different, do you think, writing nonfiction? Um, to me, it feels a little different because there are more constraints. What you've come across in your research and, and what you're trying to convey to the reader, whatever facts you've amassed that, and are trying to put in there are, are your constraints. But there are moments in the vague conjectures of, uh, forgive me if I've got the wrong end of the stick, but there are moments when, when you're making stuff up. Yes. Um, and that was kind of part of the title, um, is that I'm interested in in them as people that I'm speculating about, people who are um, helping me generate these conjectures, as opposed to, you know, this is not a, a standard biography. Yeah, sure. I mean, you say that mathematicians are guided by something that sometimes they think that something is more definably right, but they're also kind of guided by beauty. Do you think that's a kind of similar kind of aesthetic sense that guides writers when they're writing prose? Yes. Uh, Again, I just think there are many more degrees of freedom and that that beauty in the mathematical context is sort of part and parcel of being right. And beauty in writing can sometimes be a sort of seductive miscue, like you can love a turn of phrase because it's beautiful, but it might not be the right words to actually use, you know, they might not be what you need. They might be, it might be beauty seducing you rather than leading you toward the right answer. Yeah, Johnson's advice to cross out your your best beloved sentences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, another tension that runs through the book is the, the impossibility of writing about maths, whether it's like explaining a symphony to a deaf person, as Andre suggests to Simone, or whether actually explaining the abstractions is imperative as she insists. What's, what do you think? Well, I think part of my, I mean, once I started writing in this kind of backward way, I think part of my motivation to continue was that as a writer, you know, when I tell people that I studied math in college, they look at me funny and I can see they want some sort of explanation, but they don't want me to actually explain something from math to them. They want me to explain why I was interested in that or, or why was I motivated to do that. So I, I think in, in writing this, I, I, I wanted to somehow invoke the the beauty of the subject or the why I found it compelling, um, but I could only do that in a very oblique way. Part of my purpose in the book is to try to convey something about math to people who would not be interested in a conventional book about math or you know a popular explanation of the Riemann hypothesis, but they might wonder about what it is that mathematicians do or why people study math. Because it's kind of culturally acceptable to just give it a total pass, to give it a blank. Yeah, no, it's weird. It's kind of a a, a point of pride almost with some people to, to say how horrible they were at math. And people don't admit that so readily about, you know, <laughs> say English. I mean, sometimes they do. But uh, I think that for something we studied for so many years, it's a little poignant to me that that people are so ready to dismiss it. Now, why do you think that is? Do you think it's 
partly because of the way that we study it. Yeah, I think maybe it's taught in a way that makes it really kind of dreary for a lot of people. And I also think that everything that you study kind of leading up, you know, through the elementary and, and high school years is fundamental. But you only get to sort of the good parts at the end. And so if you've been struggling all along with sines and cosines, then the way that you see math is, it is dreary. But what mathematicians actually do is is more creative and more fascinating. I wanted to just put a final opposition to you, where you finish the book with the observation that Simone's personality weighs upon her writings, even overtaking them, while André grows ever more attenuated. Is this the, the common fate of all writers, of all mathematicians? Uh, of mathematicians, I mean, you you leave work behind you, but the role of your own kind of personality and psychology, I mean, we can read about these great mathematicians and maybe speculate about that. But yeah, in the end, you leave behind theorems and proofs and they're impersonal versus what Simone wrote is utterly her own and stamped with her personality, her style. I want to ask if there's some sort of analogue in the literary sphere with this idea that great work is universal. I mean, the idea that we know very little about Jane Austen, almost nothing about Shakespeare, nothing at all about Homer, but it, the work survives. Yes, no, I mean, I think that is a strain of, of work. You know, Simone herself actually wrote, she felt that the greatest works of literature were, for instance, the Iliad, um, that the and, and of art generally, that, that the less that there was the kind of stamp of the individual on the work of art, the closer to, to true beauty it was. I don't know if I agree with that 100%, but I, I think we do have an analog in, in literature of the kind of the style of no style or the, the impersonal style. Karen Olson there, and The Vague Conjectures is published by Bloomsbury. And that's all for this week. Next week, we'll discuss which books have made it to The Guardian's list of the 100 best books of the 21st century so far. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. Me, Richard Lee. And me, Shan Kane. And our producer, Ian Chambers. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.